Well, good evening. Last night, we are going to uh, go through a, a wide variety of celebratory psalms this evening. We're going to uh, sort of ride the wave of praise that is uh, found throughout the last section of the book of Psalms and really take a look at what that word means in particularly, in Hebrew especially, but moreover, uh, join the throng uh, that would have uh, gone up to Jerusalem three times a year. If you've ever been in any kind of great uh, parade, any kind of uh, uh, something in which a lot of people are involved with, there's a there's certain energy and there's an enthusiasm. Uh, the Psalms that we're going to look at tonight, uh, the, the Psalms of Ascent, as you ascend up to Jerusalem, these would have been the, the songs that you sang, uh, like maybe you had songs that you sang when you were taking vacations or the things that you did every year, and they would remind you of the goodness of the Lord as you made your way up to Jerusalem. We'll also take a look at, at what are known as the Hallel Psalms. Hallel in Hebrew is the word translated praise most of the time, uh, a section of, of the Psalter in which uh, the, the Passover meal was built around. In Psalm 113 through 118 will be our focus quickly, uh, as that would have been one of the feasts for which you would have gone up to Jerusalem. The Hallelujah Psalms, 146 through 150, sort of end... Uh, the Psalter, sort of like a 4th of July fireworks display, uh, where it just kind of goes crazy at the end, and Psalm 150 is the finale of the finale, uh, but it's meant to be in response and reaction to what the whole book uh, has meant and, and has uh, revealed. We've sort of selected our way through, obviously, um, but I, I chose the Psalms that we've uh, looked at intentionally because it helps bring out some of the major themes that the Psalms unfold. Psalm 1 was the introduction of the, the battle between wisdom and folly, or between good and evil, or between the righteous and the unrighteous. And we see that it is the, the righteous man that is firmly planted, uh, and we see the plight of the wicked be introduced. And then Psalm 2 sort of is like the sequel to that, and we see the wicked uh, in all their wickedness come up against the Lord's anointed and, and come up with a plan to unseat him. And God's reaction is just laughter, scoffing, the utter foolishness of coming against the sovereign. But sin has its way and its sway. And we see that, for example, in Psalm 63, a lament psalm in which uh, the sins of, of mankind, both uh, David and his son Absalom, have uh, weighed David heavily, I believe, in that particular psalm. And we get a, a snapshot of of a classic lament psalm in which uh, we're allowed to vent and give our complaint to the Lord and to remember God's past goodness and vow to praise Him when the Lord removes the situation that's going on. In David's life there, his own son had rebelled against him as a king and had exiled him and removed him from his throne probably after probably 35 years of being king toward the end of David's life. And, and then Psalm 23, the same author, recalling his past experiences with the Lord, exhibits what's called a psalm or a lament of confidence. He gives an individual expression that God is confident. Uh, but even in that psalm, we see uh, that he needed restoration for his soul. And he concluded at the end that if Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then the parallel to that at the end was my cup runs over. Uh, there is, there's nothing that I lack. And that collectively, those four psalms can serve for us something to respond to. And that's what I'll try to usher us in this evening as we see these psalms that we're going to 
study tonight, some more quickly than others, all kind of in a big pot like a stew. We're going to throw a bunch of stuff in there all for the purpose of seeing the celebration that is described in the scripture, the the necessity to respond to what God has done. We saw those in the individual laments. I will give testimony. I vow to praise your name. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise your name. And so we have the opportunity as these psalms introduce that this evening to see how the scripture itself introduces the response uh, to what God has done for us as seen finally in Psalm 150, which we will study a bit in detail. But I wanted to sort of like a little trip, we're going to take a few stops on this train and then we're going to stop at uh, the final stop, Psalm 150, and let it serve as the the capstone uh, finale of the whole book. Okay, so let me pray for us and we're going to head up to Jerusalem. Okay, so Lord, thanks so much for the privilege to uh, think about these things, to ponder them, to be... uh, energized by uh, the things of God, that we might be uh, good responders, good praisers of you. Uh, Lord, help us know you first. Help us understand you uh, precisely that we might carefully and yet with great enthusiasm uh, respond to what it is that you've done in the past and what you're doing now in our lives and what we anticipate um, in the future. So we thank you, Lord, for that and the privilege to study this evening. We ask now that the Spirit of God be our teacher we might be um, no longer distracted from the days, uh, from the things of the day, that we might have the opportunity now to focus and be energized and celebrate uh, with the Word of God in this section of the Psalter. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do a little bit of geography tonight, so I want to, make, I want to kind of find out what I've got uh, as far as an audience. How many of you have been to Jerusalem or in and around Israel? Okay. All right. Well, my tour costs $1,500. Most of them cost like $4,200. So go ahead and you'll pay Ron to the $1,500 and then we'll, we'll get going. I just need one. I just need one person. You know, I, you never know. But we're, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. And I, I want you to go ahead and, and flip to your Bibles to Psalm 120. There's a, toward the end of the section, uh, end of the scriptures, uh, the Psalms rather, we're going to be taking a look at a lot of the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, but this is... Um, uh, a verse from Psalm 122. The songs of ascent are going to begin in, in Psalm 120 and go through 134. But they're all about going on a trip, a celebratory trip. What's important is the background here. Leviticus chapter 23 outlines the celebration year. It follows an agrarian society, and the major feast of Israel marked the key moments in which Jewish males, 30 years or older, were required to go into Jerusalem. But of course, they brought their families. They brought their kids. Uh, It's a major trip, especially if you're from the north. Uh, Israel is about the size of our state of Vermont, and that may not sound much unless you're walking. That's a rather large trip if you're walking it, and the terrain is very diverse. And as we'll see here, you will actually ascend to Jerusalem. Wherever you're coming from, it is a plateau above you. So we're sort of used to up north, or up is north, because that's what it is on a map. You can go uh, up from north, south, east, or west in this context. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. We've touched upon this a lot, but as you'll recall, David's transfixion with the tabernacle, because that's where God was in form. And so if you go where God is, is, and that is in this case the temple during that economy, 
Uh, There's a certain sense of being closer and more holy to him. The great aspect of the new covenant is we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us and we are, we, we bring God wherever we go, if you will, that we collectively are his house, but they thought differently. That's why you'll see both men and women, and we'll see a picture of it here, standing at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, because just on the other side of that wall, they believe, was the closest you could get to where the Holy of Holies was. Now, there's actually a place within the, the great synagogue to the left of the Wailing Wall where the men can go, and you, there's a place, if you go in there, you can see them praying there, because physical proximity was important. And we get that sense. If you go to any historical site, and especially Uh, places like Israel. It's not that you're more holy or anything like that, but there is a sense of, man, I'm I'm standing in the same locale where the Lord was, or or here's where the Alamo really happened, or here's a Gettysburg battlefield, or or some beautiful art museum, and, and that's, okay, I can see it on the internet, but that's actually the picture. We're made for that. We're physical, we're, we're, we're tactile, we, we can only be in one spot at one time, and we sort of learn that way, and it's important to our grasping of things to, to be in that same area. Your senses arise when you're, you're in the same area, especially you go to Israel, and, and you get a sense that geography was crucial to understanding the whole Bible, and especially the New Testament, by the way, so many geographical references. But to go back in time and be with the throng that might be heading off uh, two or three families traveling together, caravanning down from the Sea of Galilee as they would make their way, uh, probably depending on the time, around Samaria or earlier through Samaria and then coming unto Jerusalem. Those vacations you've taken where uh, there's a physical spot that you're going and you can see it. I flew in tonight for this morning from Atlanta and then Houston, and uh, the plane, which I'm really not digging those planes coming from Houston anymore. Their little prop things are just all over the place. I'm, I'm going to have to change my, my deal there. Uh, but, I mean, you're driving in, and, 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 like, there's Kyle Field, and it's like, there's Kyle Field. They go really low. But there's that sense of, that's neat. It's neat to see things that are familiar to us from a different angle, and there's a sense of, okay, I know where I am. Whether it was Disneyland or the Grand Canyon or some place, if you travel to New York, that first time where you turn around the corner and there's Times Square, those, those visible moments sort of are seared in our memory. Well, at this time, uh, one of the great wonders of the world was the, the great temple uh, that Solomon had built. And would it have been a, a marvelous time uh, to go and see such a place? But moreover, this is where God lived. And three times a year, that family would go up and worship the Lord in in one to two week festivals. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But you can see sort of the passion behind this verse. I was glad uh, when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And then we're here. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. One of the Psalms of Ascent. Looks like this today. Um, If you want to understand uh, the, the tension going on there politically, uh, it's all about geography. How many of you played King of the Hill when you were growing up? I know the guys probably did. You build a little mound of dirt, and the one guy stands on top and says, come knock me off. And if you knock that guy off, you're the King of the Hill. Well, the Muslims are the King of the Hill right now, and that's how all of archaeology and most history can be ascertained in that part of the world is if that was an important place to you, your holy place, and your people came in and defeated my guys, you would put your most holy place where mine was, sort of a spiritual king of the hill. 
Imagine if, if the United States was defeated militarily, and the, it wouldn't be surprising that the other government would set up their president or head guy in the Oval Office, and they would have their legislators in the, in the Congress building, and maybe their judges in the Supreme Court, kind of a, thank you for building that for us. We'll take over from here. And that's the, the images we see here is from the Mount of Olives. As you, I'm just trying to show you some of the panorama of the city, because it actually is a series of valleys not as stark today as it would have been because many of the valleys have filled in. But this is looking from the east uh, on the Mount of Olives. And, and it is hard to tell, but that's, that's a pretty good drop down. That's a road there. There's another little road there, and it goes down even here more. And back in the day, you would have traversed it. It's got a bunch of uh, little terraces here because they're trying to hold uh, the erosion. Um, a lot of the Muslims have put their, their graves here thinking that Messiah would not be defiled uh, by walking through that. Most of the Jewish uh, graves are over here, overlooking the temple. But that would have been the great sight that you would have seen, that great Jewish temple and uh, the, the wonder of being in Jerusalem. This would be the southern wall here. And all that's left of this older wall is the stuff that's just around the corner there where the Wailing Wall is, around the El Aska Mosque there. Um, on the other side of that. And that's, that's sort of the big deal today. Same kind of image here, but again, it's a little distorted, but I wanted to give you some sense of the terrain. It's, it's high, it's elevated. And if you'll look throughout all the Old Testament, the high place is where you went and worshiped God. Because it, it, geographically, well, it, it, 2,600 feet, which is how high Jerusalem is, is closer to God, if you will, than 500 feet below sea level where the Dead Sea is, okay? That, it's not really true, but we tend to think that way. So whether it was the Lord or false gods always put their worship places on uh, the high place, and you would go there uh, and, and observe uh, your religious ceremony. Um, looking from uh, above, obviously, the, the larger Temple Mount, this is the Wailing Wall area. That's, the big deal is that that's all that's left of the, of the wall uh, that existed from what would have been later Herod's temple, Haggai's temple refurbished. Uh, and so this is west, that's east. We were just looking from over there into here. That's south, and that's west, or that's north. So the, the whole image of this larger plateau now is Muslim-controlled, and you've got very stark scenes throughout the city where uh, you can you could see right into here, and it's very poignant, especially from this angle where if you're, if you're a good Hasidic Jew and you're seeing your most holy place being trod upon by Gentiles, as the scripture says, uh, and they're king of the hill, it, it's a tough time for you. Uh, and that's a lot of what's going on uh, today. The city to- topographically is really a series of three valleys. Uh, the most famous one, the Valley of Jehoshaphat to the east, which is also in the scripture known as the Kidron Valley, a very strong and, and deep valley, Mount of Olives here, Looking, to the, uh, looking at the east side. In the middle, and this one's pretty much filled in now, the Cheesemakers Valley, or the Tyrophenian Valley. Uh, and then here, interestingly, the Valley of Gihon, Gihon, also known as the Valley of Hinnon. Now, in Hebrew, the word Gai is the word for a valley, G-A-I. And so it's the Valley of Hinnon, Gehenna. And thus, our imagery of hell comes from that word Gehenna because this was the place where parts of it was a garbage dump. And you would throw your garbage out there and people would burn it. And so the images of hell throughout the scripture, especially the New Testament, where the, where the worm, or we would say maggot, never dies or it, it, it is never quenched. And the, the flame, the fire, 
It never is put out because they would often burn. So you just see this sort of sea of rubbish fires. And if you got close, it was almost alive with all the, uh, the stuff going on under the ground. And that's the image of hell. So it just comes from two Hebrew words, gai hinan, Gehenna, and that's the image of this. Again, geography being very important to our understanding of how the scripture unfolds. The city simply built from the south um, to the north. You, you, you've got the city of David, the lower city here, and it moves up, and then the larger Temple Mount area here. Uh, technically, two different locales uh, because you had a valley in between. You have Mount Moriah here and Mount Zion here. What happens collectively is the whole large plateau is sometimes just interspersed. It's called Zion, or it'll be called Moriah. Very technically, they're two separate things, but uh, they're morphed together many times in the Scripture. Um, and you see in that particular angle here, by the way, what a lot of uh, Jews living in the old city uh, would see is uh, one who, looking across here, so you can see how high they are. So it, it, it has a lot of, of movement to it. Uh, again, 2,600 feet uh, above sea level, and, you have, and it starkly goes up. But that'd be a very powerful view if you were a Jew and you saw the king of the hill. And that's what's going on today. That's the tension. Every day, that living audiovisual is there. And underneath, there's some seething going on, as you might imagine. I'm actually stunned that somebody hasn't launched a rocket into that over this period of time. And if it happens tonight, I'm innocent. Okay, that's not, I'm not up to anything. But... It's just so hard to watch this. And these older stones are the stones from Herod's temple that would have been that which is left and, and the, the desire, therefore, to go back to what was real. Divided by the men here, women here, and then you could enter into the, the great synagogue over here, and there's all sorts of stuff over here. Uh, behind this are all kind of tunnels. Uh, it's really quite amazing, the, the archaeology that's there. And, of course, you read your papers, you'll see all kind of debates going on. They close this tunnel, the Muslims will open it back up. Uh, there's a whole lot of debate over who owns it. Apparently, the Muslims have pretty good control now of the Temple Plaza in the lower area the Jews obviously have access to. So um, that, that's sort of what's going on. If you get real close, you'll see all kind of little pieces of paper stuck in the cracks of the wall. Uh, prayers, um, you know, sometimes they'll fall down and sometimes you'll read them and they'll say things like, I'd like a lot of money or I, I want to know God better, th- things that we might pray. Uh, and the, the idea there is I'm close to God, I want to pray to him and so that you'll see that imagery a lot and uh, the leaving behind of a prayer request. This is the western wall, so this is, this is looking east. This is the Mount of Olives up here, Mount Scopus here. Uh, and so the plaza goes here, and then the valley is there, and then the mount is here. So this is looking east at the western wall or the Wailing Wall. So that's what you would see if you would go to Jerusalem today. It's, a, it's not anything like it would have been, but I'm trying to give us some context of the magnificence of the place. The Psalms of Ascent, go ahead, let's go ahead and look at Psalms 120 through 134, because I want you to just thumb through those 15 Psalms, obviously not... Uh, with for great detail, but just get a sense of some of those psalms. So many of them are quite short. Uh, we're going to have draw some lifts from, from many of them, but I want you to just get a sense if you had not looked at those before. These are the celebratory songs, the camp out songs. See if you can identify some reoccurring themes. Uh, 
Now, these psalms are also called the, the pilgrim psalms, or the psalms of ascent, obviously, the songs of degrees in the sense of going up, or the gradual psalms. Um, there's a lot of lure behind them. It's, you can't prove it biblically, but uh, was certainly psalms you, songs you would sing along the way. Maybe songs, if it took maybe 15 days, you might sing one a day. Uh, there were f- supposedly 15 steps up to the, the gates in the temple, uh, and the Levites would sing one, uh, or there, there'd be different sections uh, singing Psalm 120, and then the next step would sing one, 121 as you perhaps ascended the steps. Um, can't find that in the scripture, but there seems to be good lore behind that, that these songs had the freedom to be used in a variety of different ways, but they were intended to focus your attention on we're going to up to the house of the Lord. Now, they're so named because of the pilgrim Israelites sang them as they traveled from their homes all over the land and ascended Mount Zion, also obviously known as Jerusalem, which is at 2,600 feet for the annual feast, and the annual feast many places, but uh, clearly described in Leviticus chapter 23 as well. We're going to take a look at those feasts just to give you a sense of what they would have uh, done. Uh, they would have certainly been used to provide uh, travel inspiration, to be instructive, to be encouraging. Uh, they were memorized and so uh, probably had parts, you know, take it girls, okay guys, anything to kind of pass the time as you walked what could have been a uh, pretty long distance and certainly everyone as they ascended to Jerusalem the Psalms couldn't be too long because you're huffing and puffing pretty good. And so uh, that kind of imagery. Uh, the phrase, a song of ascents, is found in the superscription. Remember that, like where, elsewhere it says, a psalm of David, or when David was in the wilderness, things like that, to be played with a gittite or a lyre. That's little italic for, uh, font in your Bible is actually verse 1 in the Hebrew text. So it's just as inspired as... John 3.16, and so it clearly lets us know that these were those particular types of psalms. And so images that come out, the expression of hope and confidence of worshipers, that we, that we had the privilege now to go, as we finished major portions of our agricultural year, to now go up and give thanks, to be with others, to celebrate, to worship. David composed at least four of these 15 psalms. Solomon wrote one, uh, the remaining 10 or anonymous. If you had to bet, probably David would have been the major author of the ones that are anonymous. The themes that come out, and you would have seen certainly the imagery of Jerusalem. It's a big deal to go to the nation's capital, to go to the place where God lives. And certainly if you live there, that helps you get a better picture now. If you'll see people in a variety of types of expressions of faith and different religions do pilgrimages as they go to these places where, uh, that are holy to them and special to them. Uh, of course, this ordained pilgrimage seen in the scripture in Leviticus and elsewhere, Jerusalem is the predominant theme in these psalms. Notice, our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem, as we read. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, that idea of stability and strength and, and raised up. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed, and the image of, of that city being a metaphor for the whole nation and its wealth, similar to our Washington, D.C., and how, how upset we were uh, on 9-11 when both, of course, in New York and, and the Pentagon areas, that, and they're going for our pearls of our cities as they sort of symbolize the strength of the whole nation. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. Bless you from Zion, because that's where he is 
conceptually. Uh, May all who hate Zion be turned back to shame. We've seen the the retribution of the wicked throughout many of the Psalms, and these contain it as well. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired for it his dwelling and the importance of that place and that mindset that that's where God lives. Peace or, or shalom is another important concept found in these particular Psalms. And as you would go through your year, perhaps there had been turmoil. And if you read the Old Testament, there's not only turmoil from without, but there's examples of civil war, if you will, within uh, as well, and, and the importance of celebrating the peace. Not just a lack of war, although that can be a form of it, but a more holistic way of looking at life, that I am filled with him, that he, I am complete in Christ or in Yahweh in that age, and that idea of wholeness or completion can be experienced. Two psalms uh, will end with the blessing, peace be upon Israel, both from Psalm 125 and 128, both uh, these pilgrim psalms. Psalm 122 is is the prayer for the peace of Jerusalem, very famous prayer. Uh, God's protection uh, for the nation is a theme that will come throughout this series of psalms, these psalms of ascent. As we see, the Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore in 121. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, another reference to the geography of the land, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. The importance of of God's vigilant as a protector. We'll see also the blessing of children is a theme. It would have fit perfectly because this was a major time in which you would have taught your kids and reminded your kids and your family and your wives and your uncles and grandpa who's coming with you and the, the sheep you're bringing with you and all the things so you could go and properly sacrifice. It would have been a major throng that would have traveled with you. You would have traveled en masse because of protection. You wanted to be safe on the streets and you wanted to keep your kids safe so you were aware of God's protection. But uh, the prayers that I certainly pray the most when it comes to protection is not for me, but keep my kids alive. You know, I tell my kids, you think my job's far more, you know, important than it really is. My whole goal is just to keep you alive. If I get to teach you something, that's great. But mainly, I just want to make sure you stay alive in the image of the idea of children and the blessing of children. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, uh, children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Um, I have to have a quiver full of daughters, but I'm sure he meant that too. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. All of that imagery coming from the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are short and average only about seven verses. So if you're going to start scripture memory campaign. You want to start with John 11.35. Okay, Jesus wept. You can get one down and get some good confidence going. But if you want to memorize some Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent are good ones. Uh, The Psalms as a whole average 14 uh, verses, by the way. But for their brevity, they are profoundly inspirational. And we're meant to uh, bring that type of celebration. It's, It's small, I realize, but I want to get it all on the same page. The returning exiles may have sung, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Down in the south, where parts of it was quite fertile, uh, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaths 
with them, Psalm 126. The last verse became the basis of the famous hymn, Bringing in the Sheaves. Similarly, a popular Hebrew folk song is based on Psalm 133, which proclaims how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. Psalm 134 provides a fitting conclusion to the collection from 120 through 134. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion as the, that, that final song of sense uh, unfolds. Um, what you would have been going to uh, would, would have been a festival. Three major feasts in which males were required, but certainly the family was routinely invited and included. Uh, and make sure that we understand sort of how the calendar worked. It was originally followed the agricultural year of planting in the spring and then the first crops coming up and being thankful and celebratory for that, waiting then for uh, the harvest as the summer allowed the growth to occur, and then towards September, October, uh, the the harvest. If you've ever been on a a wheat farm or a a, a seed kind of farm, I happened to spend a September, uh, 10 days in September in Canada, when uh, the, the wheat and rape seeds were coming in and that harvest was going on. And I'm talking about some serious barns with lots of seed where these guys with huge combines, some cases some of these, uh, these farms were 1,500 acres, were, were constantly working. The, the wives or the kids would bring food out to them. They would have shifts, but never would the, the harvester stop unless it was time for refueling, which was often done on the move, by the way, or the necessity for oiling and things of that nature. For That little window was so crucial because the weather could ruin all your work and all of your hope economically rest on the proper gathering of that grain and selling it, storing it, and then selling it. And so it's a time of great work and great celebration uh, as it came through, and that's the culmination of the year. So it simply follows that, and although the calendar has now switched to the spring festivals being first in the civil calendar. Biblically, in Leviticus 23, the religious calendar begins in the spring and then goes into the summer and finally into the fall. So that's the one we're going to follow just to see how they think through uh, following a spring-summer-fall approach. The rejoicing, of course, uh, sacrifices, psalms, uh, just were just songs that they sang. A special and particular ceremony uh, unique to each feast or festival was uh, was there, and they were all explanatory and revealing of how God uh, was going to to uh, demonstrate Himself. The Lord Jesus used the festivals all the time. I am the light of the world was spoken in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is uh, the huge lighting of candles and uh, the imagery of, of I am the bread of life, and out of me flows living water. Water was poured out on the steps to signify abundance. He used cultural references from the scripture to demonstrate what he was doing. And it adds some real flavor uh, and layers to, to his teaching uh, because it was profoundly Jewish. And it's uh, the Hebraisms found in both the Old and New Testament are there. And I, I'm, I'll try to draw out a few of those for us as we see the background of that. So what's going on at the end, because some of these were later added. Purim, for example, was later added from the book of, of Esther. But you would have gone through this calendar, but the ones in red are the three main ones that the calendar was built around. The Passover 
also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, it's also connected to first fruits. Those are all separate days, actually. But within about a week to 10 day period, you would come in and celebrate the, the planting of the crop, that your crop is now in the field, and that, that is, uh, you're asking God's blessing upon your crop. And the first fruits, the little the, the first little sprigs have come up, and you're recognizing that, that that three inches will then grow into three feet or six feet if you're a corn guy. And remember the old knee-high by the 4th of July kind of in Texas. It's like 10-foot high by the 4th of July. But that idea of, and it's captivated farmers forever, that the, the idea of putting seed in the ground and something that comes up uh, that, can, that can cause uh, sustenance and wealth and prosperity and health and you can't take any credit for it. You can plant, you can water. I planted, Apollos watered, 1 Corinthians. But God causes the growth, that mystery of germination and how that produces a fruit or a husk of wheat or whatever. And so those first fruits come up and you're happy and you, you enjoy the Passover meal, the celebration of the Lord's deliverance of Israel from, from Egyptian bondage. And then you went back and you, uh, you had to work your fields a bit, maybe weeding and getting ready for the summer, and 50 days later, you would come back, and the Feast of Pentecost, Penta, meaning 50, it wasn't called that originally, it was a Sabaoth, the Feast of Weeks, seven weeks, and one day later, after Passover, you would come and enjoy that feast. And of course, the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost. And every, on, on every Jewish festival day, something significant has happened in the life of the church. It, it, the parallel is amazing. And so the, the birth of the, church, the, the Lord Jesus and, and his Passover meal and his death and resurrection, probably signifying by first fruits, 50 days later, the birth of the church, the celebration of the first fruit of many believers. And he'll use that image throughout the New Testament that Christ is just the first fruits of many more that are to come. And, and the image is, is simply if you see a few coming up, there's more on the way. And that's the image that, that, that germination and growth that God is causing uh, is about and can be expected and can be celebrated. So you would come in and enjoy that, but then you went back uh, for the hot summer months and you waited for the harvest. Uh, uh, the feats, uh, the, the, he, Jesus would say, the, the fields are white uh, unto harvest at the end, but the workers are few. The harvest was done at the end of the summer and it was waited upon, it was celebrated, but it had to be properly timed. You couldn't just go take your produce until it was ready. And so finally it began, and what you have now is what you had then is, is the larger feast known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, some call it the Feast of Trumpets, Feast of the Ingathering, uh, it's referred to. The trumpets would blow, and about this 15-day commenced time would start in around Jerusalem. And you would go through all sorts of things, including Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement that happened on the 10th day. You would then live with your family in in ceremonial booths or tents, commemorating the time of the great millennial time where God will tabernacle on earth with man. And all these things were symbolic and were to be taught uh, as to what God had done. And then we can begin to see what we can anticipate him to do as well. But once the crop was in, you would bring portions of it. You would bring the fattest of your cows and lambs, and you would offer sacrifice. And it was a great time of celebration as the the heat of the summer dissipated and the cool of fall was upon you. Um, Of all those feasts, by the way, those that have gone for them, many will say the Feast of Tabernacles is uh, the most powerful 
uh, moving event to go to because it's just wildly celebrated in Jerusalem and the, the imagery is so powerful behind it. Now, what you would have participated in if you had gone up, let's say, to the first feast, which was the Feast of Passover, connected with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits, would have been the Hallel Psalms. Okay, so flip back now to Psalm 113 to 118. This special section of the Psalter that was in this case designed to provide an order, and the word Seder is the, is the word for order, uh, for a Passover meal. And these would have been the Psalms that would have been uh, represented in that Seder meal, would have been sung as the various cups of wine were drank. And finally, the fourth cup, the cup of redemption, would have been celebrated. And as I see, as I think you'll see, that will be the psalm that Jesus will lead them in, uh, in Matthew and Mark, because the scripture says they sung a hymn and then went out and it was dark, it was night. And that's the background that fits perfectly. But nonetheless, these 100, from 113 to 118, known as the Hallel, the basic Hebrew word for praise is Hallel. We'll see later, that's how hallelujah is constructed. That's the root brick of that larger word. The praise psalms, hymns of praise, they were to be sung at the festivals of Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles, as well as the festival of the dedication, which is Hanukkah. Uh, Hanak is the Hebrew word to dedicate. Hanukkah, the festival of that dedication, celebrating when the Jews took back um, Jerusalem from under the Maccabees and took it back from the Greeks, and it was celebrated by the oil lasting longer, and thus they could light the menorah for a longer period of time, around 167, 166 B.C. Uh, Jesus celebrated the Feast of Dedication in John chapter 10. It's not a prescribed biblical uh, ordinance. It's simply, he simply observed it. And I guess validating the miracle or certainly culturally accepting what was uh, going on at the time, it was very fine for him to celebrate it. New moons, as their calendar was a lunar calendar, we sort of work around a solar calendar. Their calendar was lunar, and that's why the dates can change so much. That's why Easter can be in March and then late in April. It's all around the lunar calendar. And they would celebrate new moons because it's how they determine cycles. Uh, at a domestic celebration, if you're in your home and the dad is leading uh, the celebration of the Seder, the Passover, uh, Psalm 113 and 14 would be sung before the meal. Psalm 115 through 118 after it, when the fourth cup had been filled. Uh, Psalm 118 at least was probably the hymn sung by Jesus and his disciples in the upper room, as described in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. So spend a few moments just looking at Psalms 113 through 118, uh, and then we'll go through some of the the major points of those psalms as we sort of make our way uh, up to Jerusalem, enjoy the Passover, and then culminate it with Psalm 150. What's really happening now in, in the book of Psalms is it's beginning its conclusion. If you see the book of Psalms as a book, although it has five major sections, it has a beginning and the theology of God is unfolded like most books progressively. You can learn more about him as you go along. You see the battle between good and evil expressed in human passion and human emotion, human drama as the lament psalm, which comprises about half the Psalter, is bombarding you throughout the first and second books. And then uh, difficult things about the Lord are discussed in the third and fourth things, and precatory psalms come up. 
but you begin to see that you learn about God, you see Him as magnificent. You see Him as a creator in the image of creation, and God is the creator from Psalm 8 and Psalm 19, and all throughout the Psalter is seen. And then it gives us opportunity to respond. But it doesn't do it all at once. It, it's sort of like a, a slow drum beat, and then it starts to move a little faster, and finally at the end, it's a huge crescendo. But Psalm 113 is the beginning now of the praise portion of the psalm. And you're, we're reading words that the Lord Jesus read and, and songs he sung uh, that, that Jews who have followed Yahweh uh, for at least 3,000 years, if, if David wrote the bulk of this around uh, 1,000 B.C., uh, ancient words of how God wanted us to respond to him and that he wanted us to respond to him is a major thing that I want to get across tonight. So this is, just, this is the Lord's inspired guidelines for praising him. And we see, for example, praise the Lord in English, in Hebrew, hallelujah. And we're going to spend some time talking about both the word praise and that large fonted word, uh, Lord, Yahweh, and making sure we have a good handle on that. Praise the Lord, as the Hallel Psalms begin. Uh, o servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forever, forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. One of the things that's fun to do, because unfortunately we often know hymns and uh, spiritual songs more than we know the scripture itself, and that's okay, I'm, I'm, I have that same problem. Just You'll be amazed at the number of little hymns and choruses that you'll see, and this is where they came from. This is what was on the heart of the person that said, you know, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. He did it a lot better than that. But that kind of, of, of stuff is what goes on as I read these things. And I go, look at how the people of God have responded. And it comes right out of the Hillel Psalms. Now, I'll, I'll read some of this to you because it, it's, it's sort of small font. But each psalm is going to have a little bit of contribution, as you imagine. Psalm 113 is a psalm of praise of the Lord's greatness and His grace. Anyone who knows of the Incarnation could not miss the obvious parallels between the psalm and that doctrine. What you'll see in this section, especially Psalm 118, is heavy New Testament usage of these psalms. These were the Romans and the Ephesians and the Johns of their day. That was the scrolls that were the most marked up in your family library. The, the Psalms and Deuteronomy and Isaiah were the books that they constantly were referring to. And we're kind of at the heart of the Psalms now as it brings forth response to what God has revealed. Uh, it is the nature of the Lord to come down in order to exalt the helpless and the weak. Psalm 114 celebrates the exodus from Egypt. We've said that, we've said that little phrase before, but the Bible expects that you know the Bible. The Bible expects that you know some of the history to which it is alluding or referring to. So it's important as you study, if you don't know what the Exodus is, we'll go back and read it in Exodus 12 and following. Then you can get into the passion and the history of what they're writing about and what they would have either experienced or certainly generationally had talked about. Uh, and so it is altogether appropriate at Passover when the first um, Exodus occurred. Um, other than any national festival. It declares how God delivered his people with miraculous interventions, calling for the earth to tremble at his presence. And what it reminds us of is what the lament psalmist knows, that God has acted in the past, and that's important to know, 
I am now in a similar dilemma to a condition that existed in which God acted. Therefore, I can ask him to ask again or intervene again and similarly expect him to deliver. And if he does, I will go and tell it to the assembly. So he is responding to God's character based in history. And that's why, frankly, the Old Testament is so important to know. It's where we get the history of God intervening with his people. The Lord Jesus is the, the creme de la creme of that, but it is just a short four years at tops, three and a half years of God's experience with mankind. Uh, you're going to leave out a whole bunch of great interventions of the Lord dealing with people if you only are a New Testament guy or gal. So that's what the New Testament people are reading, the Old Testament stuff. Old Testament people are responding to previous events in the Old Testament. So it's really the best way to see how the Scripture has unity uh, and is brought together. Psalm 115 is apparently written in a time of national humiliation. It is a prayer for the Lord to vindicate His honor by delivering His people. The psalm contrasts the powerless gods of the pagans who drag down their worshipers to the level of impotence and senselessness with the sovereign Lord who is omnipotent. Israel's sense of her own need adds to the call for faith in Him. Psalm 116 is a psalm that praises the Lord for answered prayer and promises lifelong praise for it. Uh, Psalmists can look forward to a long, tranquil life because the Lord proved Himself gracious to him. The psalmist had not lost faith in the great time of trouble and so now can praise the Lord and edify others. The psalm is a prayer for deliverance from imminent danger of death. Psalm 117 is a call for praise for the Lord's loyal love, that chesed word that we've looked at before, and his truth. Some have suggested the short passage serves as a doxology to be used at the festivals. At any rate, it is used by Paul in Romans 15:11 to show that the grace of God was extended to the Gentiles. You get into the New Testament, you see them quoting those Old Testament verses. They're bringing over similar context. This is like it was back then. And, and it draws the unity of the Scripture together and helps us fight against this sort of idea that the Bible is like Bennett's Book of Virtues, you know, just a series of little platitudinal statements. It's the story of God revealed in human history, and there's connectivity. Uh, there's like a relay race. There's the passing of the baton, and those key baton-passing moments are important to know uh, historically, but more importantly for theological history. In Psalm 118, uh, the greatest of them all is filled with significant theology and typology. Just look at Psalm 118, verses 22 through 29, and see if you can find five, and you can cheat if you want to, if you've got a Bible that references, just find five New Testament illusions or references from Psalm 118. Uh, and I want to share a few of those because these are, these, this is where many New Testament familiar statements come from. Do you see them? I mean, there's a plenty right before that, by the way, but just the idea of salvation there all throughout that is the Hebrew word yasha from which Yeshua comes, the word we would say Jesus. That image that he shall be called Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. That's the background here and many other places. But how about the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? First Peter 2, elsewhere. Uh, the imagery of the Pharisees rejecting Christ and, the, and the, the, it's called the talionic aspect of God that he can, he can cause it to fit. What Joseph said at the end of Genesis, what you meant for evil, 
God meant for good. So uh, in that building mindset, it had to start with a powerful, sure and firm cornerstone. And that was brought forth in the builders. The Pharisees rejected him and said, we'll come up with one of our own. And God, in his way, said, no, I'll take that rejected one and make it the most powerful uh, uh, rock on which the rest of the edifice sits. Any others did you see? It's believed that Queen Elizabeth, when she was uh, crowned queen, quoted Psalm 118, verse 23, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You'll see that uh, in some building campaigns when stuff gets built, you know, it's okay. Reoccurring theme of faithful and true. (laughs) And on his name was faithful and true. That's very good. That was right before that. I wanted to see what that word Where's that word, Skip? Where's truth? Interestingly, most of the time, like in English, there are several words that are synonyms that are, you know, different words, but they sort of mean the same thing. But a very common word translated true or truth is the Hebrew word aman, from which we get our word amen. It is most often translated faith or believe. And the idea behind faith or believe is when you believe in something, when you aman it, if you'll allow, you're sizing it up for its strength, its stability, its firmness. Uh, Some of the pillars in the temple were called emets, the noun form of that. Because what do pillars do? They provide strength and and they'll hold you up. Uh, The nurse in Ruth 4 to, to the child was, was called an emet because nurses provide not physical strength per se, although he or she may, but that strength of, of purpose, of consistency. you got to take your pill at 3 a.m., but they gave you a pill to make you sleep at 11, and so you can't wake up on your own. You need someone with strength to show up who will provide for you uh, that doctor's orders. That idea of, of truth then comes from that. Truth is that which is firm and reliable doesn't move. The image of, of, of ruins is in my mind. When you, when you go to a ruin, actually not everything's ruined. The stuff you see is not ruined. Everything else that's fallen down are the ruins, but what's standing are the pillars, the strong things that stand upon the chief cornerstones and the solid rocks and have overstood the tests of time. And that idea of, of truth, it comes from that same image, that reliable, firm information that doesn't, that changes not. So faith then, or believing, becomes the considering, the sizing up of something based on its firmness, its strength, its stability. And we respond to the degree to which we consider something firm or reliable or strong, and thus we have great faith or little faith or want to increase our faith, as the disciples say. That's the same image behind the word truth. Um, ton of stuff in this little section, though, uh, from, from Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord for his good, his loving kindness. His, his chesed is uh, everlasting. He's faithful to the, to the house and all those that he is in covenant with. Uh, but you see here, the Lord is good. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with the cords to the horns of the altar. This was the time to come in and offer the celebratory sacrifices, which were allowed because of the great celebration that would accompany the, uh, the feast, in this case, Passover, that was uh, uh, intended uh, in which these particular psalms would have been sung. So the, uh, the importance of these psalms, obviously important as it worked out, but to live in their life 
which is really what we wanted, what we want to do tonight, is to see the importance of it. Now, the, the final section of the Psalter uh, is known as uh, the Hallelujah Psalm, Psalm 146 through 150, and they go pretty powerful and pretty quickly. Um, and but but taken out of context, they won't really have much meaning. If you don't see this as the finale of the firework demonstration. It's just a bunch of psalms in which people are praising the Lord. It's intended to be reactive to what you had just read as you worked your way through the whole book of the Psalter. It's a, it is an individual collection of hymns, yes, but it is arranged such that we can learn about the Lord all the way from the basics of Psalm 1 unto the final praising of the Lord at the end. And most of the praise words do not occur until now. They're scattered throughout, but I think we'll see one-third of the praise terms in the Psalms occur in this little section of Scripture. It's very clear what he's doing. Psalm 150 is obviously the last of the Psalms, uh, and the, the, the Hebrew phrase, praise the Lord, or hallelujah, uh, begin and ends each of these final Psalms, giving it some uh, rhetorical identity, obviously. 33% of the praise terms. Uh, in the entire book of Psalms occur in these final Psalms. So I want to show you their contribution, like we've seen the contribution of the Psalms of Ascent or the contribution of the Hillel Psalms. The Hallelujah Psalms are in reaction and response, and that is going to be at the root of the word Hallel, to praise. And we're going to spend a little time really identifying biblically what it means to praise, okay, uh, and see that it's reactive to what we've already learned or know about God in this case. Musically, Psalm 115 is the crescendo of the Psalms, the climactic end of the inspired hymnal. Thirteen uses of the word halal, from which hallelujah will be formed, occur in these six verses alone. Uh, It's basic. Uh, You can't miss it, what he's trying to do. Uh, It is over-the-top praise as he is, uh, um, the author is in the midst of the throng, going up to Jerusalem, praising the Lord uh, for all that he's done. As you saw in your in your notebook, if you read the background, most likely this was the time of, of David's bringing up the Ark of the Covenant and where he danced before the Lord, uh, and the image of his just unbridled joy in celebration and in worship. It also gives us a sense uh, and license to understand biblically that celebration is a part of life with God, uh, and praise is more than music. Uh, praise is a, a lifestyle, an attitude of responding to what God has done, and the expressions of that praise can be multifaceted. Some will be quiet. Some will be loud. Uh, some will clash cymbals. Others will sing. Uh, but collectively, uh, reacting to what God has done is the essence of praise, which we'll see here in a moment. Psalm 115 is, is the final doxology of the Psalms. Its message is simple and ac- action-oriented. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It is the, the purpose of life. Uh, to know God and react to what it is that you know of Him. Um, and and we'll, we'll make sure we see that. Praise the Lord. Praise Him in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Praise, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. One of my favorite movies 
certainly growing up, but sometimes still today, was the music man. And, and the great line from the music man, I love a big band, kid. I just, I, I love the sound of, of all the, the different instruments coming. And, and, of course, in his mind, it's always grander than it really was. And the beauty of the movie is musicals are great. You can get away with anything. And the next thing you know, little Johnny can play the saxophone, and, and he's wonderful. And the band is going through the street, and all the different instruments are contributing. And, and the, whole, the whole town sort of gets swept away in it. Now, that's the image uh, that's going on here, and all the different contributions uh, that you uh, that you see. It's sort of broken down um, in a little outline that amazingly all begins with the same letter. I, I don't really know how that happened, other than to show you I went to seminary. Uh, the, 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 the first idea is is this universal call to praise. Uh, notice, praise the Lord, praise God in His sanctuary, praise Him in His mighty. Sanctuary You'll, in, my, in his mighty expanse. You'll see that in a lot of these psalms, this universal call to praise. Because what we're going to learn when we, when we take a look closely at the word hallelujah is that it's a command to praise. And to say praise the Lord, to say hallelujah is not actually praising the Lord. It's a call to praise. Uh, here at A&M, you'll call the muster to, to simply, if I was just to say softly call the muster, that is not actually muster. That is calling people to come and participate and celebrate the lives uh, that we're mustering today. So we kind of reduce it, uh, kind of this shallow praise, if we conclude that saying hallelujah is in fact praising the Lord. It's rather, hey everybody, come on, let's praise the Lord. And we'll talk about uh, the details of that in a moment. But uh, everyone is called for a cause. Uh, We're going to come and praise the Lord, and I think this is going to be the key to understanding the word praise biblically, are these two little words, the word for and according. Throughout the Old Testament, when you see the word praise, the predominant number of times you will see the reason that you are to praise Him. The particular is cited. The because word is added. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. It assumes that you know what those mighty deeds are, by the way, whether that's creation or the large flood in Genesis 6 through 9, uh, the magnificent deliverance of His people, all the great interventions, His mighty deeds, and praise Him according to His excellent greatness. We would say His character. Uh, We often would say His person and work. The excellent uh, mighty deeds would be His work, the excellent graces, the greatness would be his person. It assumes you know some things about how excellent his greatness is. And this is in the last of the Psalms. And even in the last of all the Psalms, he reminds us that proper praising is for a reason. And the citation of that reason is the key to proper praise. The actual recording of what, uh, that we're, we're praising him because he has done mighty deeds And that would prompt people to say, remember this, remember that, remember this, remember that. And his the excellent greatness, the the wonder of his character. Then it goes into uh, the celebration, the the various types of instruments. Look at all the instruments. Now, obviously, what's found throughout here is praise. It's just a praise fest. Praise, 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 praise. But notice the variety of instrumentation and thinking through the significance of that. 
I'm not a good musician, but you can see, uh, the, you know, sort of the, uh, the the various contributions. The trumpet would be the first. That's very typical. The Feast of Trumpets marked the beginning of the ingathering. Uh, at the corner of the temple, by the way, uh, if you were to look at the Wailing Wall, picture that in, in your mind, just to the right would be the southwestern corner and be similar to this corner here. They have discovered the actual uh, rock that was the corner piece. It was notched for a trumpeter's knee so he could stand at the edge, and in inscripted on it, it says in Hebrew, the place of the trumpeter. And so that, when, when Jesus says not one of these rocks will be left, that's, it fell when Titus defeated Israel or defeated Jerusalem in, in 70 A.D., and where it was discovered in the mid-90s, in the mid-1990s, was, this is how recent some of this stuff is, that was one of the most famous discoveries of that place of the trumpeter who would call out at the top of this plateau, so down in the valleys and the noise would carry like you can in the mountains and the echoes, you know, ba-da! And so the idea of the trumpet sound would be leading this band and, and harps or lyres, the stringed instruments would be a part of that. Uh, timbrel and dancing timbrel would be a, a tambourine. Uh, dancing here also, sorry about that. Uh, praise him with stringed instruments, another type, obviously, uh, of, of a stringed instrument. Pipe or flutes would be a part of this. Um, loud cymbals, and apparently there's another kind called resounding cymbals, or those are synonyms. I don't know the musical instrumentation well enough. My point is just to note from a significance perspective the variety and the inclusion of musical instruments in uh, the facilitation of praising the Lord, of the celebration uh, that is attendant to, to praise. And finally, the culmination is powerful. Uh, and, as the band sort of reaches its final destination, maybe it ends on the steps uh, of the temple uh, and then let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And then in case you haven't quite got it, he says it one more time, hallelujah. This is actually uh, hallelujah, hallelujah, and this would be a slightly different variation of that, but very similar uh, in sound, uh, to uh, the, the total, the totality of life is to give praise to the Lord. Now, I want to make sure that we understand some of these words because we, we look at them so often, they may, um, might elude, uh, their meanings might be elusive to us, but probably better. This is what the word Yahweh looks like. Hebrew is a three-letter uh, word language. Uh, so all the root words are verbs, by the way. And the most common word in Hebrew is a three-letter word. You'll note this is not three. This is one more. It's called the tetragrammaton. Tetra meaning four. Grammaton, we get our word grammar, four letters. Uh, and, of course, you read from right to left. And, and so this is the Hebrew letter yod. This is a hate. That's a vav, and that's a hey. And so yod, hey, vav, hey, or y-h-w-h. And uh, the, the V can either be a W or a, a, a V sound, depends. So it might be Yahweh, Yahweh. It's not a whole lot of difference between a V and a W as we pronounce them in the middle of a word. And what's going to be important is that this word is incorporated into so many other words in the Bible, especially names. I fear that it gets lost if we don't spend just a few moments and recognize the Jewish background of so many names that are found in the Scripture, because the root word or the, the, the phonetic pronunciation of this word is Yahweh, two symbols, two syllables, and often shortened to Yah. Okay, my my real name is Robert. 
Rob would be a nickname. Michael can go to Mike. That's uh, not unusual. God's got a shortened name, uh, and it, it is the shortened form of his longer name. It's not a nickname, if you will, but it is a shortened form. And this word, Yah, is going to be found in lots of words found throughout the Old Testament. I want to make sure we see that. Um, what we're going to see, first of all, is how praise the Lord is put together. And then I'm going to pass out a little handout here. But this is where praise the Lord is going to come from. This is what hallelujah looks like in Hebrew. That's uh, the shortened form. That's yah there at the end. This is the root, root word halal, just simply means to praise. We're going to study that in just a moment. And this is the key. This is a masculine plural command. Sorry about that. It means you all or all of you or down here we might say y'all. Y'all praise Yah. Okay? I want all of you to come and praise the Lord. So it's a call to come and praise Him like we saw in Psalm 150. That's the halal, hallelujah, and then yah. Now what happens in English Bibles is the Y gets changed to a J and I have no idea why, because there is no J in Hebrew. And they're trying to transliterate a Hebrew word into English, and yet they use a vowel or a consonant that the, that the Hebrew language doesn't have. We're stuck with it, but the idea is Yah. And I want to show you that kind of uh, imagery and what can happen if we, if we don't uh, recognize... I want you to split those up. Uh, here, This is just a handout coming around that has a bunch of... Um, inclusions of the shortened form of the word Yah, okay? You'll, what it, all it's saying is, is that words like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, think of Obadiah, all the, word, all the names of your Old Testament prophets that end in English, A-H or I-A-H, in Hebrew is very clearly Y-A-H. So, Obadiah is the servant of Yah. Isaiah is Yahweh is my salvation. Zechariah is Yahweh remembers or Yah remembers. And what happens is if you drop that Y and just go to an H or for heaven's sakes change the Y to a J, you sort of miss that it's Yahweh's name. And it, it just sort of hacks me off, to be honest with you. And I know this is on the Internet, but Gary will clean that up for me. It, it, it's, it seems to be something that is not necessary, but we're not going to change it. But you know, the, the idea behind this word now is really, let us all come together and praise Yah, okay? The shortened name for Yahweh, uh, as seen in the Old Testament, okay? So that idea is going to come from this concept. We're going to build this word up now. The normal word for praise is halal. And praise is this idea of deeply acknowledging anything that you consider superior or great. It's not a God word. Lots of things in the Old Testament are praised. False gods are praised in Judges. We're going to see here in a moment that Sarah will be praised for her beauty or the Proverbs 31 woman will be praised for her uh, wisdom and works. So it's not a God word. It's any time somebody thinks, I think that's superior, or I think that's great, the word halal is used to describe that. But the key to it is commending for a reason. Remember we saw in Psalm 150, praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his excellent greatness, to look for the reason to praise him and to cite those reasons 
is actually the full expression of praise. The idea elsewhere to exalt or lift up. In the street, we might say to brag on somebody. It's pretty shallow bragging if you don't cite some things about the person that you're bragging upon. And so you brag upon someone and you state, well, I'm bragging on my kid because she did that or he did that. You state reasons for what you're bragging on them. And to remember it kind of from a rhyming perspective, we need to remember that true praising articulates the particulars. We state forward what it is that has happened. Remember the lament psalm? You get me out of this and I will tell of thy name in the midst of the assembly. Particular things that God has done for, uh, for you. And that then forms a more robust and complete idea of praise rather than a shallow, oh, just praise the Lord. Just praise the Lord. It's kind of a little word that we use to throw around to indicate that we were kind of in the club, but it's really not praising the Lord. And so to push us just a bit, biblically to praise the Lord is to cite specific reasons that you know about him, the root of that word acknowledgement obviously is to know, that you consider superior or great about the Lord and say it out loud, articulate it. Examples of praises we saw, Sarah's beauty, Tyre, the city of Tyre, the second most cursed city in the whole Bible, is praised uh, for its, it, the stuff it does well, according to the world's view anyway. Uh, the good wife's work in, in Proverbs 31, again, not a God word. Anytime the Old Testament uses words to describe that which is superior or great, almost always uses the idea of praise or of halal. C.S. Lewis kind of overused quote, I realize, but this captures what I'm trying to communicate. In any area of life, one naturally praises what one appreciates. In fact, the praise is part of the enjoyment. It does not matter whether it's sports or flowers, sunsets, children, cars, great books, or anything else. To enjoy something fully, one must speak of it. To go beyond the simple praise the Lord and actually begin to cite commendations, cite reasons about the Lord that you're praising. Specific things according to his uh, excellent greatness or according to his mighty works, according to his person or works. But specific things about him is where the praising occurs. Let's go to a hunting illustration, guys, just for a moment. What kind of hunting story is it that uh, we killed a deer? <laughs> You'd never heard a guy do that. Oh, man, it was great. We got up at 4.30. It was freezing. That blind was so cold. I hated what we were doing, but I was going to. And then he came out. He took us. Shh, be quiet. I stalked that thing or whatever. It takes forever to talk about it, what happened in five seconds, right? Because the particulars is what makes the memory so powerful. You remember a football game. You just don't go, a good football player, you don't say, that was successfully completed a pass. Very good. Oh, man. You see the blocking? Man, he got open. How fast is that guy? Works of art, movies, things that we talk about. That, that, that we think are great, we cite particulars, and in the citing of the particulars, the praise is let loose. That's part of it. In fact, that's the crucial part of it, is maintaining uh, that, that discipline to say, what is it about it that I find so great? Now, guys, we can do that. 
We can talk about blocks, and we can talk about tackles, and we can talk about fish, and we can talk about hunting. We can talk about all those things. We can talk about the Lord with the same kind of exuberance, the same kind of detail, the same kind of power. The ladies are excellent at this. We do it. We just need to understand that that's all the word praise means biblically. Talk about God the same way. Know him so well that you can talk about him with such passion and such delight. Uh, And let everything, therefore, that has breath uh, praise the Lord. So that's all I wanted to kind of bring out with with those words. If this handout is helpful to you, Again, I think my whole purpose statement in life is to get the why back in Yahweh, you know. Uh, If you see me squirm in church and it says hallelujah with a J, now you'll chuckle. Um, I think I told the story. Daniel Darnell was an intern here a couple of years ago, and I did this little thing in a longer word study for him. And and he has all these songs on PowerPoint and overheads. And he went back and changed every one of them. To, to, and, and if you'll notice, I even I got it in there at the end. You know, if I'm teaching the class, I'm going to do whatever I want. I got the little Y up there. But that's it. That, that's the essence of the word. Let us all praise Yah, the shortened form of Yahweh. And it just makes it more personal. It makes better sense. Um, if you see the word Alleluia, A L L. E-U-I-A. I've never seen more vowels in a row. I didn't think it was possible. I completely come unglued there because they've knocked the H off and the U-I-A is somehow supposed to be Yahweh. And that came through the Latin and all that. But that's the root behind it. And, and I think knowing these, the Jewish fiber of our faith is crucial. And it, it, moreover, not just for the sake of knowing it, but for the sake of understanding the revelation because God has woven those historical events and that culture and the expressions and their words into his revelation. Uh, and, and to spend just a little extra time, uh, for me anyway, and I hope for you, it sort of enlivens your understanding of what's going on and, and how beautiful the scripture is folded together. And the Psalms, of course, and the reason we wanted to do that this summer is kind of the, the coup de grace of all that. It just captures such passion humanly as well as good theology um, and the, and the freedom to, uh, to celebrate before the Lord in a variety of different ways, as we've seen. The one that is fitting to you, but the freedom to do so. So um, that's all I got, you know. I don't, know. I don't have anything else to say about the psalm. No, 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 shut up. <laughs> I didn't mean that. But, yeah, let me throw it open for any, we got a couple of minutes. Any, any reactions, any thoughts? Uh, any things that, that the Lord might have, have done in your heart over the last several weeks? Chris? Well, the whole history of Jerusalem is really... Jerusalem is one of the, the greatest archaeological um, locales in the world for a variety of different cultures. Uh, and the whole history is king of the mountain. Uh, and so the, the Jews were expelled... At the destruction of the temple, the temple to which of which Jesus says, "No one of these stones will be left," uh, in, in August of seventy A.D., roughly you know, two thousand years ago, and have not been back in the land until May of nineteen forty-eight, when it was established as a state. And so that period of time from seventy A.D. to um, nineteen forty-eight is a, just a series of successions of which 
Uh, originally it was the Romans, of course, and then they fall away. And I'm going to get in trouble here, so help me. You've got the Turks. The Turks are the ones that built the wall that you see there, that built on top of Herod's stones, because the other ones were knocked down. Um, you've got the Crusaders come in. Persians are, are a part of that. Um, and, and all of your spots or sort of venerated when you take over this area and you build your spot there. So you got the 7th century where the Muslims uh, take the largest control and will will build, the, the temple is torn down. There's a plaza, uh, sort of like a deck of your house. You see a house that's burned down? Well, the foundation is still there. So that's there, and then they, they built their, their, that's two of their most high, holy spots, by the way. Uh, we talk about that the most. That's the Alaska Mosque there. That's a, a very large mosque, uh, which is just more like a church or a synagogue in, in, uh, for, to other religions. Um, and there's actually a thing over here is the Dome of the Spirits. It's either there or there. So these spots are crucial to them. So this is where, in their opinion, where Muhammad um, ascends to heaven and things of that nature. The British had control, and it, as a as part of reparations for World War II, the land was given to Israel. Uh, and the, but that didn't seal it; they they were immediately attacked. Uh, that's not that's not till later. Yeah, you, 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 Six Day War in '67, the Yom Kippur War in '73, but in '48 they were attacked. Uh, there, there are stories, uh, and you might be able to help me more. There are stories of. Of, of, of Jews beating tops of garbage can lids to feign machine gun fire to, to ward off the assembly of, of attack over there. You know, we got, we got a lot of guys here, don't come. Marvelous interventions of, of recorded uh, secular generals uh, of, opposite, of, of Egyptians and Jordanians that were saying, oh, we saw a huge a convoy of, of uh, tanks uh, in the Negev in the south that we were going to come up and attack. And they go later go, we didn't have anything. I mean, it was just God protecting his people. So that was sort of the deal, that out of World War II and the atrocities, obviously, that happened to the Jews worldwide, their land was given back. And it's more complicated than that, but that's the essence of it. Of it. Um, so it, the British were the last to hand that off. And as you know, that, that was a huge part of the world that they controlled. From there, uh, India, China, that was sort of the trade routes that they used. But that, that's a good, I, I should have got that for you, a better history of Israel, but it's, it's just nothing more than we want this spot, we'll take it. And, and thus the archaeology is literally stratted. And that's why they'll, the, the, the old way of doing it, which is still probably not a bad way, is just to sink a shaft, to dig a well. So say it's eight feet. Go straight down. And if you're, it's like a rock formation at the Grand Canyon. You can just see, that, you know, here's the Persian stuff, and they liked pink or something. Here's the Greeks, they liked purple. And you can see their pots and all that stuff. You go to places like Jericho, you can't help but kick uh, old potsherd that is two, 3,000 years old. It's just lying around. Everything's old. So we kind of get excited about old stuff. You have to have a permit to, like, dig a, a well in your backyard there because you're going to hit something. Um, is it significant? So it might be significant to the Greeks. might be significant to the Romans. might be significant to the, the Christians. might be significant to the Turks or the Muslims or the... Others, and so you have to get all this permission. But I'll, I'll get you something that sort of stratifies that. Any other thoughts, or yes, sir? It is an amazing trip to take, and uh, 
we didn't have a whole lot of hands go up, so I think we got a trip coming up in a summer or two, but it would be wonderful to, uh, to uh, the geographical aspect of understanding the scriptures, the, the Hebrew flavor that you'll pick up is very important. And there's more to the land. You go up to Galilee and where uh, Petra was, or over to the east where Petra was, or way north to where Dan was in the Old Testament, and um, uh, Caesarea Philippi, a lot of the crucial places to the Lord's ministry. Um, to the west on the, on the uh, Mediterranean Sea, unbelievable, um, intact uh, Colosseums and Bethsion up in the mid-north is an amazing, it's probably the greatest uh, replica, or not replica, representative of what life was like. It's the, the best aqueducts. preserved. The aqueducts on the, on the river or on the ocean there are amazing, still intact. I mean, some are caved in, but it's, you could see it. You could just see what the, the, the thing looked like, and it makes sense to you uh, from a geographical perspective. Well, let me close this in prayer, and we can sit and chat. But I've had a ball. Thank you for attending. I hope it's blessed you. It's blessed me because God is good, and he's a great teacher. Lord, thank you so much for instructing us and, and um, uh, affirming us and uh, rebuking us and uh, guiding us and protecting us. And, uh, Lord, we just want to respond um, that we love you that we want to say things about you, that you're good to us, that you, you love us, that you care for us, that you are mighty uh, in your works and you are excellent in your character. And Lord, we want to uh, be spurred on uh, to be men and women of the book who can uh, talk to you in words that you have communicated so that you can look down and smile and say, you read my book, thank you. And we talk your way, we talk your language. Help us to, to be aligned with the way you think and the way you are. All of us need guidance and instruction, Lord. And wherever we are, there's always uh, something that we can uh, correct, adjust, um, that we might bring glory to your name. And so thank you for the privilege of, of studying together this summer. I pray that you might continue to refresh us as we contemplate some of the principles that we've talked about and, and maybe in some cases discovered materials that We've, you've provided through us, Lord, that we might use those privately to uh, seek your face through these beautiful psalms. For we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, thanks. That was a, a good summer. It was fun. <laughs>